0: Church family, I invite you to open up into God's word um, to uh, Psalm chapter 139, Psalm chapter 139. We're going to look today at verses 13 through 16, verses 13 through 16, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. The title of our message today is Praising God, Protecting Life, Praising God, Protecting life. Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 through 16. Church, this is the Word of God. And uh, so as I read, you follow along. And uh, let's pay close attention as we hear from the mouth of God. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. true is perfect in every way Lord and it is a light for our paths Lord as we seek to walk in the midst of a very dark world Lord we thank you for your word that illuminates the way that we are to go that helps us to know what is right and what is wrong that encourages us and strengthens us to live for You in a world that is in many ways opposed to You. And ultimately, Lord, Your Word leads us to Jesus for a full and complete salvation so that we can be purified and so that we can shine brightly as lights for You. Lord, guide our thoughts in these next few moments In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The top five leading causes of death in 2020, according to the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, were this, heart diseases, 697,000. I'm using round numbers here for us. Cancer, 602,000. COVID-19, 351,000. Accidents of just various kinds, 201,000. Stroke, 160,000. Top five leading causes of death in 2020 according to the CDC. You get on you see that, you pull it up yourself and, and see it. Guess what cause of death didn't make top five list? Abortion. Now I would love to be able to tell you it's because that number was too small to make the top five list. But if I told you that, I would be lying to you. Abortion didn't make the list of leading causes of death in 2020, according to the CDC, because our society has decided that the occupant of a mother's womb doesn't fall into the category of a living human being unless the mother wants the child. And thus, the elimination of that occupant of the womb through abortion does not count as a human death, according to the CDC. Now, if they did count abortions as a cause of death, then abortions in the United States would have topped the list of leading causes of death in the United States in 2020. According to the CDC, abortions in the U.S. came in at 620,327. Now, if you remember those numbers, you would say, well, that doesn't mean it tops the list, that makes it second on the list, as if that's any better. But actually, That 620,327 is not an accurate number. And the CDC uh, admits that. And here's the reason why. Three states don't report their abortion numbers to the CDC. Guess which states those are? California, New Hampshire, and Maryland. The Guttmacher Institute estimates that these three states account for 20% of all abortions in the United States. And so with just a little math... That means that the total abortions in the U.S. in 2020 were actually about 775,408, which means that almost 80 more deaths by abortion occurred than what the CDC says. Did I say that right? 80,000. I might have said 80. 80 80,000 more deaths by abortion than what the CDC says is the leading cause of death. And I doubt that number of 775,408 is even accurate because I doubt that that number includes all of the unborn babies who die in laboratories as a result of IVF or in vitro fertilization technologies, the procedures. And we're just talking about numbers in the United States. The World Health Organization estimates that around 73 million induced abortions take place worldwide each year. Seventy three million. Now, 73 million people had died in a war last year. Governments would be pouring resources and energy into ending that war. If 73 million people had died from a virus in 2020, governments would be pouring money and energy and resources into ending that virus. If 73 million people had died from a terrorist attack, governments would be pouring resources and energy into hunting down the perpetrators and killing them and preventing that terrorist attack from ever happening again. But when 73 million people die from abortion, governments pour resources and energy into ensuring that more women have the opportunity to kill the life that is in their womb. Church, when we say that this world is broken, it's broken. When we say that this world is full of sin, it's full of sin. When we say that this world is dark and evil, it is exactly that. And this evil shows up in many different forms. And abortion is one of the most obvious expressions of evil in our world for those who have eyes to see. But I want to go ahead and give us good news And the good news is that God has invaded this dark world with the light of his son. And through Jesus, he has invaded our hearts through faith in his son with his light. And he's called us then to this grand privilege of shining as lights in this dark world. My hope for us today is that we would grow in our ability to shine brightly in our world when it comes to valuing unborn human life. Now, last week we studied all of Psalm chapter 139. And in this psalm, we saw the greatness of God on display in a just incredible and glorious way. And at the same time, we saw God desiring to draw near to us, to sinners, in fellowship with him, him making a way uh, for us to relate in fellowship to him. We saw that God is all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful. We saw that the number of his faults is mind-boggling, and we saw that his holiness is perfect and serves as the standard of morality for humans. And we also saw the problem of sin and our need for God's grace and that God will give us grace if we will call out to him for That grace to save us. Today I want us to revisit verses 13 through 16 of Psalm chapter 139. And do a little bit deeper dive into these verses. And think specifically how these verses ought to shape our understanding of life in the womb. And thus our response to something like abortion. So some of our time will be spent examining these four verses in Psalm chapter 139 and what they mean. And some of our time will be spent considering the application of the beliefs that these verses should lead us to hold regarding unborn human life. I'm going to try to say a lot today, okay? Um, But even at that, there will be more that could be said when we're done. Um, But um, hopefully, I pray the Lord will be honored in our time. My prayer, church, is that we will walk away from this time together today, one, just more in awe of God's powerful and creative work in the womb. Also, that we would be better equipped to stand for the life of the unborn. And that we would leave rejoicing in the grace of God that allows sinners of all shapes and sizes to fellowship with the holy God and then to have that privilege of shining brightly for him. I want to organize our thoughts today around five main statements. The first one is this. From the moment of conception, a new human life has begun. From the moment of conception, a new human life has begun. If you don't know what the word conception means, perhaps for some of our younger ears here today, let me put it to you this way. It is a word that refers to the combination of the ingredients necessary to make a baby. When those ingredients come together inside of a woman, it is called conception. And from that moment until the baby is born, that woman is called pregnant. She is with child. She is expecting a child. On a recent round of Celebrity Jeopardy, the celebrity contestants were naming the charities that they had picked to receive their winnings. One of the celebrity contestants said her charity of choice was Planned Parenthood. Now, Planned Parenthood exists to provide abortions. They're not going to say that. They're going to say they exist to help women. But they are in the business, and it is a business, of abortions. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. That lady called an organization that promotes the intentional destruction of human life a charity. How could someone say that destroying a human life is a charitable, a loving a life-giving enterprise with a smile on her face to the applause of many. Well, one way that you do that is by redefining what is in a mother's womb and what is disposed of through an abortion to try to redefine it. Think about it this way. If what is in the womb, that is in, inside that mother, if what is in there is not alive, then disposing of it is not causing a death because it never was alive in the first place. If what is in the womb is alive but not human, then disposing of it is like cutting down a tree. It's a death in a way. I mean, it's, it's a living thing, but it's, it's not a death with great moral consequence. If what is in the, is a, in the womb is alive but merely a part of the mother, not, a, not its own individual human, then disposing of it is no different than removing cancerous cells from a woman's body. But the truth is that what is in the womb from the moment of conception, from the moment that new human life begins, is a new human life. And all three of those words are important. From the moment the right biological ingredients from a man and woman combine, a new human life has begun. What is in the womb is alive. It does not merely have the potential for life. It is alive from the very beginning. That first cell is immediately growing and reproducing itself. It is alive. What is in the womb is also human. What else could it be? It's not a plant. It's not an animal. It's the product of humans. It is a human. It is a human life, a living human. And what is in the womb is a new or maybe you could say a unique human life. Yes, it is attached to the mother, but it's not merely cells of the mother. That human life contains a unique set of genetic material different from every strand of DNA in the mother's body. It is a new human life. And to say anything different is to to deny the basics of human biology. To say that it only becomes new human life at some point after conception is to make a completely subject, subjective claim that cannot be supported at all. From the moment of conception, that new human life has everything in it necessary to produce all the parts that will develop at various points in that in that process of growth in the mother's womb. And it's all there at the beginning. There's nothing that happens. Think about this. There's nothing that happens on any particular day in the time when that baby is in the womb that would validate us saying that today this is a new human life, but yesterday it wasn't. And you can, you can take that argument and that line of reasoning all the way back to the moment of conception. And so from the moment of conception, we have to start here with this truth. A new human life has Begun. Second statement that I want to share with you is this: Every new human life is a work of God. Every new human life is a work of God. This is where Psalm chapter 139 verses 13 through 16 really helps us understand the high value that we are to place. On an unborn child. Now by way of reminder. We saw last week. How these verses are connected. Verses 13 through 16. Are connected to the previous verses. You remember that. David has described. The all knowing nature of God. In verses 1 through 6. He then described. The all present nature of God. In verses 7 through 12. In other words. God is everywhere. All the time. He's never any place. That you could go. To escape the presence of God. In verses 7 through 12. And then. And notice even verse 12. He says. Even the darkness. Is not too dark. To you it's not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So you say even you can think about the darkest place in the world and God is there. And then you recall we said that in verse 13, it's kind of like David says, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of a really dark place where God is present. And not only is he present, he is actively and powerfully at work. And that place is a mother's womb, a mother's womb. Now, with modern technology, we get the benefit of actually getting to see a baby develop in a mother's womb. I want you to think about it from the perspective of David as he's writing this psalm about 3,000 years ago. There weren't ultrasounds or 3D imaging or any of that stuff. No amplifiers to be able to hear the baby's heartbeat. None of that stuff existed. And, And so from his perspective, the womb was a dark place where no one could go except, of course, God. It was a secret place, as he says, look at verse 15, A secret place. It was so dark and secret of a place that it might as well have been. Look at the end of verse 15 in the depths of the earth. And yet God was there in David's mother's womb and he, God, was doing an incredible work. I think these verses point to us to at least three truths we should believe about God's work when it comes to an unborn human life. I want you to notice these three. First, an unborn human is God's personal work. An unborn human is God's personal work. And we talked about some of this last week. But we need to be reminded of it. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I was being made in secret, the text says, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I mean, that you can't get more hands-on language than that. Intricately woven, knitted together. Now imagine your grandma sitting in her chair in her living room, knitting a new hat to give to her grandchild. Now imagine walking up and snatching that hat out of her hands, tearing it apart and throwing it in the garbage can. Abortion is a personal, excuse me, unborn life in the womb is a personal work of God. And therefore, it is right to say that abortion destroys the very personal, hands-on work of Almighty God. The second truth in this kind of thinking about this unborn life being the work of God is this an unborn human. It's not only God's personal work, it's God's powerful work. And again, we consider the the power of God last week. Look at verse 14. Just as by way of reminder, David says, wonderful are your works. Now, perhaps this is one of the greater understatements in the Bible. And I'm not saying God's word fails us in this way. I'm just saying that humans with with. Human language, it's, we're just limited in the ability to, to describe and comprehend the greatness of God. Wonderful are your works, oh God. Just think about it. I mean, one day a mother has a one-of-a-kind human single cell that you can't even see except with a microscope containing all the information necessary to grow into a one-of-a-kind human inside of her and then nine months later she's holding a baby in her arms that's crying and wanting to be fed and needing a changed diaper and I mean little cell to, to human being like we we have to stand in awe of that. Because I mean, that is the powerful work of God. Now, I'd encourage you to do some research on the development of a baby in the womb. With modern technology, it's absolutely stunning to see that process. And just, just, just as a a way just to say, whoa, God, look at, look at what you do. This is powerful. And number verse 16, as to our understanding of the power of God, remember this from last week, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Here we see that God also has the days of that child already spelled out in his mind before those days even happened. So God not only forms that child for his days, but God forms the days for that child. Incredible, incredible power. Which means that abortion destroys God's powerful work. And then this third reality about the work of God in a mother's womb, an unborn human, third, is God's praiseworthy work. It's God's personal work. It's His powerful work. And it is His praiseworthy work. Now, I don't mean the baby is worthy of praise. But that God, the creator, is worthy of praise. We don't praise the creation. We praise the creator of the creation. Look at verse 14, right in the middle of this incredible description of what God is doing in a mother's womb. He, the psalmist David just breaks out in praise. He says, I praise you, oh God, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Personal presence and power of God in the womb prompts David to offer praise to God and ought to prompt us to offer praise to God as well. But consider what abortion does. It's the exact opposite of praising God for his work. I'm not sure you can get more opposite of praising a creator for his creation than by destroying that creation. Church. Abortion is an invasion into a place where God is personally and powerfully at work with the goal of destroying his work that is meant to bring him praise. If we want to define abortion from a biblical perspective, that is it. It is an invasion into a place where God is personally and powerfully at work with the goal of destroying his work that is meant to bring him praise. So that really leads us to this third statement. We kind of already already explained this. The third statement for us today is this. The intentional destruction of an unborn human is a sin against God. So this state, sometimes we just need to state truths very clearly and very simply. Destruction of an unborn human life, intentional destruction of that life in the womb, it is it can only be a sin against God. If an unborn human is a personal, powerful, and praiseworthy work of God, then the destruction of that life can be called nothing, nothing less than a sin against God. Think about it this way. Jesus summed up all of God's law with these two commands. You know what they are. I'll paraphrase. Love God and love others. That was, that was how he, he summarized the entire law. In other words, he's saying, if, if you always love God and you always loved other people you'd be perfect. Like all the commands, everything else is summed up in those two things. Well, abortion is the opposite of both of those commands. Destroying the work of God is definitely not classific- cannot be classified as showing love to God. And-, and destroying a person definitely cannot be classified as loving that person. And so abortion is the opposite of loving God and loving others. So how in the world do people try to justify such a horrific act? again simply put i think the only way we could try to justify abortion is we'd have to redefine what it is that is in the womb if it's not a new human life then maybe there's a there's a could be a good reason to destroy that life but if it is a new human life then then the justifications that are so often given for abortion they 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 fall flat think about it this way if it is something less What's in the womb is something less than a living human, then killing it is not the same as killing, say, a 2-year-old or a 5-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old or whatever, a a person outside of the womb. But if the unborn is a living human, if that's what it is, then killing it is essentially no different than killing a 2-year-old. I want to give you a list of excuses. This is where I want to try to get practical and hopefully equip us to to, to respond well um, to this, this sin in our society. I want to give you a list of excuses that you may hear for justifying abortion and a response to these excuses, and I hope it will just help us think more clearly, help us be more prepared to stand up for life in the womb. You know, almost all of these are attempts to, to either redefine what it is that is in the womb um, or or just sometimes just, they're just attempts to just simply ignore, um, just to turn a, turn a, t- a blind eye um, to the reality of what is there in the womb. And, and the way to expose many of these excuses is to use, just use the same justification for killing a two-year-old and see how it sits well or not so well with us. Let me just, let's just go through some, and I, I pray that this will help us. Sometimes we hear, but it's so small. It's so small, I mean... I mean, at some stages, you can't even see it without a microscope. It's so small. Well, that's true. But size doesn't determine value. You cannot justify killing a 2-year-old because he's smaller than a 20-year-old. I mean, under that, under, under that excuse, everybody in here who's smaller than somebody else, you, you're less valuable than the taller people and the bigger people. The size doesn't determine your value. Well, it doesn't determine the value of life in the womb. Another excuse we hear, well, it's undeveloped. It, I, mean, it, I mean, it doesn't even look like a human yet. It's, it's undeveloped. Well, that's true. But level of development does not determine someone's value. A two-year-old is less developed than a 20-year-old. It doesn't mean we can kill the two-year-old. Just because the two-year-old is less developed. There's a lot of 16-year-olds that are less developed than they're going to be, or 18-year-olds, or sometimes even some 20-year-old guys that are, they still got some developing to go, at least in the mental capacity there. It doesn't mean we can kill them. So can't use the argument of it's less developed. Well, here's another one. Well, it's inside the mother. It's inside the mother. Or now with modern IVF technology, it's it's over there in a test tube somewhere in a laboratory. Well, that's true environment may be different than our environment, our location, outside of the womb, not in a test tube somewhere. But environment does not determine value. You can't say that a two-year-old's value changes based on his environment or location. A two-year-old inside of a car is just as valuable as a two-year-old when he gets out of the car. He changed locations, moved a few inches, it's still just as valuable. Well, same with a life in the womb. In the womb, out of the womb, only a few inches difference in the location. Location cannot determine value. Here's another one. Well, it's dependent on the mother. It's dependent on the mother. And by the way, I'm using the word it a lot today. I'm kind of using that because that's what we hear. We know that it is a he or a she. Okay? It's a human being. But I'm, I'm, I'm putting these in the form of what we're going to hear but, but it's dependent on the mother. Well, that's true. Uh, but dependence does not determine value. Yeah, that, that that baby in the womb has to have the mother to live. It's dependent, uh, 100%. But guess what? That baby is just as dependent as a one-day-old newborn. Give birth to a baby and then just leave it lying there and come back a few days later, see how, see how that baby is faring. So, so, how about a two year old? Yeah, a two year old, leave him out in the woods and uh, walk away. Come back a few months later, see how they're doing. That two year old is dependent on the mother, but we say that two year old has value. Can't justify killing the two year old just because that two year old is dependent on the mother. Here's another one. But it's not conscious. It's not aware. It doesn't even know. Like, it's not self conscious. This is the argument that's used, the argument of, of consciousness. It's not self-aware. Well, that's true. That n- baby in the womb is not conscious of his or her existence. Neither is a newborn. That newborn is not conscious of his or her existence. A two-year-old is somewhat conscious, but definitely less self-conscious than, say, a 20-year-old. What about a person who has been in an accident and is in a coma that person, as long as he's in a coma, is not self-conscious at all. doesn't know anything that's going on. It doesn't mean you can intentionally kill the newborn or the two-year-old or the 20-year-old who's unconscious just because they lack consciousness in that moment. Consciousness does not, self-awareness does not determine value. Here, here's another one, and this one is very similar to the dependent, the the, the dependence argument, but I want to separate it because this word is used, and so I want to I want to use it. It's the it's the viability argument, but it's not viable. What do, what do people mean when they say that? It means that that. That newborn can't live outside of the womb. And this is where we draw arbitrary lines in the the time where a baby's in the womb where we say, well, abortion after this certain point is is wrong because at that point the baby is viable, but before that point the baby's not viable, couldn't live outside of the womb. And so in that case, then abortion is, is okay. Well, let's just think about it. It's true that a baby in the womb may not be viable, but viability does not determine value. Think about it like this until very recently in human history, a 25 week old baby in the womb was not viable. If a woman gave birth to a 20, 25 week old baby, that baby was probably going to die. I mean, that's barely even halfway through the, the, the process of that baby growing in the mother's womb. But with modern technology, that baby, that baby that's 25 weeks old is very viable May not live, but there's a pretty good chance now at 25 weeks a woman can give birth to a baby and that baby survived. Just incredible. I'm so thankful for that technology. But does that mean that the invention of technology to to sustain the life of the unborn 25 week old baby all of a sudden changed the value of unborn 25 week olds? No. The invention of that technology did not change the value of that baby in the womb. Let's say there's a two-year-old who is diagnosed with an incurable cancer. Can we just go ahead and kill the two-year-old because we don't have the technology to sustain her life for very long? No. can't base viability and, and therefore technolo- uh, 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 value on, on viability or, or really what we're doing is basing it on technology. Let's think about it this way. Let's go back to the unborn. What about an unborn, 25-week-old, so 25-week-old in the womb, who is in the jungles of the Amazon versus a 25 week old in the womb in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, one has access to the technology that could keep him or her alive outside of the womb, and the other does not have access to that technology. So we could say under this viability definition that the one in Atlanta is viable, but the one in the Amazon jungle is not viable. So does that mean we can kill one and not kill the other? That one has value and the other does not? No, we're just drawing arbitrary lines here. A viability cannot be what determines value. Let me give another one. But it's flawed. that something's wrong with it. Maybe due to a genetic defect or some other handicap, the doctor says uh, something's wrong with your child. It's not going to be, he's not going to be born. She's not going to be born, or it's not going to be born, normal, whatever the definition for normal is. Not sure I've ever met a normal person, <laughs> including myself. Well, it might be true. That genetic. Defect might be a reality, but genetic perfection does not determine value. First, you can't justify killing a two-year-old because that two-year-old has a genetic defect. Right? You can't, you can't justify it. I can't say, well, I killed my two-year-old. Well, why? Because there was something wrong with his DNA. Well, I would get in trouble for that. That would be against the law. But people do that all the time. With babies in the womb. But let me give you a second reason for that, not just the kind of two-year-old argument. Let me give you another way. And this is what I was kind of, in, in a way, making light of just a moment ago, kind of making a joke out of it. In some way, every one of us is born flawed. It's just that some people's flaws or defects are more obvious or easier to detect before birth or have a greater impact on their lives or perhaps have a scientific name. Now, this isn't the funny part of it. The reason is because of God's curse upon the world because of our sin. Because of that, not one human person is born perfect, not even biologically perfect. I'm not just talking about our sin nature, but we're not even born biologically perfect. We all inherit flaws. There are many diseases which with more modern technology are known or at least beginning to be known that or that have a genetic component to them. In other words, that cancer or that heart disease or that arthritis might just, you've heard this before and you've said it before, run in the family, right? What are we saying when we say that? And, and we're not just saying that. There's genetic um, evidence that some of these things like heart disease and things like that do run in the family. At least that's a part of it. What are we saying? Well, we're saying there's a problem with our DNA. There's a defect in our DNA, We all inherit these flaws. If a flawed DNA lowers a person's value to the point of it being okay or even, quote, an act of compassion to end life in the womb, then every one of us should have been aborted because none of us are perfect, not even biologically perfect. It's just that some defects we can detect before birth and some we can't. And some we, we say are worse than others and are, 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 are more worthy of death, that causing death than others. Let me give you another one. It's planned or inconvenient. Excuse me, unplanned or inconvenient. It's unplanned or it's inconvenient which often go hand in hand. Well, that might be true, but situations don't determine value. The reality is that every pregnancy is inconvenient on some level, even if it was planned. Just ask the pregnant mother who is nauseated or can't sleep because of little feet kicking her in the ribs during the night. At some level, every pregnancy is inconvenient. You know, it's also true that two-year-olds can be quite inconvenient as well. Just ask a parent who's cleaning up after a sick child at 3 o'clock in the morning. It's pretty inconvenient. At least if you like your sleep. But I can't kill my two-year-old just because she sometimes inconveniences me, or even if she was unplanned. I can't look at my two-year-old and say, well, you're unplanned, you're an inconvenience, so I'm going to kill you. But that's often the reason given for ending life in the womb. Let me give you another one. I told you I'm going to be really practical for us for a few minutes. But its beginning was sinful or even traumatically Sinful. What I mean by simply sinful, maybe that child was conceived out of wedlock or in a bad relationship or something like that. Um, there's just some, some so not good situation that was surrounding the conception of that child. Or maybe that child was conceived in a very traumatic way in the form of rape. And as difficult as these situations are, especially the situation of rape, the manner of conception does not determine the value of what is in the womb. And maybe a woman says, I can't give birth to this child because I will be reminded of a bad decision or a bad relationship or worse, the trauma that came as a result of the conception of this child. There's much sensitivity to someone who is in that situation. Let's just, let's just treat it the same way for a moment as we have these others. You can't justify killing a two-year-old because he was conceived in a sinful manner or because when you look at him, he reminds you of past trauma. If my child, when I looked at her, reminded me of a difficult situation in the past, even if that that situation was the very much connected to the reason for that child being here, I can't then kill that two-year-old and say, well, that two-year-old was a reminder of, of trauma in my past. I can't justify killing the two-year-old. And, and let me give you another, another just thought to go along with that. Listen, a sinful choice to kill a baby in the womb cannot be the right way to heal from a past simple choice or a past simple action that was done to a woman. Taking the life of the baby who had nothing at all to do with the sinful choice or choices is a terrible way of seeking to rectify or bring justice or bring healing to a situation where sinful and even illegal acts have been committed. Just to put it really simply in a phrase we always use, two wrongs don't make a right. This in no way denies the horror and the trauma that we're talking about here. However, the manner of conception, no matter how traumatic, does not determine the value of that life that is in the womb. It is a new human life. Let me move on. Let me give you another one. Two more, okay? But it's my body. This is the argument of bodily autonomy. It's my body. I can do whatever I want to do with my body. Let me give you two responses. First, know that life is not your body. It's another body who happens to be living in your body by God's design. Right? God designed life to begin in a mother's womb. And to need to stay there for a certain amount of time before it could be outside of the womb. Focusing on your body doesn't change the value of the life in your womb. That's where we... Go all the way back to the beginning of today and we say it's a new human life. It's unique. And second, when it comes to the legality of abortion, the government tells us all the time what we can and can't do with our bodies. If I'm in a crowd and I start feeling claustrophobic and having a panic attack, I can't claim bodily autonomy and run over everybody in my way to get out of that and hurt and injure them in the process. I would be frowned upon and I might even be arrested depending on how much damage I did to people. I said, it was my body. I felt this way. I said, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean mean I can hurt people. If I get really hot on a hot summer day in a public place, I can't take off all my clothes. I'll get arrested for that. That's the government telling me what I can and can't do with my body. Let me give you this last one, but it's a private issue. A private issue. Listen, the right to privacy argument was actually just used in our state by the South Carolina Supreme Court to say that a woman has the right to abortion. Here are two responses to that. First, you can't justify killing your two-year-old because of a right to privacy. I can't kill my two-year-old and say, well, it's none of your business. And second, the government rightly invades our privacy all the time in the name of protecting people. For instance, I'm not allowed to physically abuse my child or my wife inside inside my home based on a right to privacy. So then how could someone be allowed to take the life of an unborn baby based on a right to privacy? See, here's the point with all of these. Each of these justifications for abortion, if they are carried out to their logical conclusions, the reality is that any of these justifications could then be used to take the life of just about anyone, a 2-year-old, a 20-year-old, or a 72-year-old. And so in every one of these cases, the question at the end of the day is what is it it that is inside a mother's womb? If it is a new human life, then that life must be treated the same as you would treat a two-year-old. Are there differences between the unborn human and the two-year-old human? Yes, but none of these differences can be used to determine value or to justify killing one, but not the other. Now, now before moving on, let me address one unique situation because I want us to know how to respond when this comes up. What about in the case of an ectopic pregnancy? Now, without getting too descriptive, an ectopic pregnancy happens when the baby begins to grow in the wrong place inside of a woman. And that happens sometimes. And when that happens, and if nothing is done, the the child and the woman will die. That's going to be the result of it. And so in those situations, um, the, the choice basically is, to do nothing and both die or to remove that baby from the womb I would be in the very beginning stages, but it's still a human life, um, and, and then the mother's life could be saved. Um, I can't imagine the difficulty of being in that situation as a parent, especially as a mother, but in that case, I do not think it is wrong to act to save the mother's life, even though the result is the death of the unborn child, because the death of the unborn child is not the intention of that procedure. The intention is to save the woman's life, and the unborn child is going to die anyways. Now, more could be said on that issue, um, but, but I think there's grace there um, to say it is not wrong to save the mother's life. So it's right to call abortion a sin. One of the ways we honor God is by opposing that which he opposes. But, church, we don't stop there. So I want to, as quickly as I can, give you these last two statements, okay? Um, You've been gracious and paying close attention, but, church, it's very important that we know what we believe in on this so that we can stand firmly and so that we can shine brightly we also ought to proactively value that which he values. And so, number four, valuing unborn human life in tangible ways brings honor to God. What do I mean by tangible? It means hands-on, like actively, not just saying, not just sitting in in a church building on a Sunday morning saying, we value human life, but actually showing it by our actions. We should not want to be known merely as people who hate abortion, though we do. We should want to be known as people who value life at every stage of life by protecting and caring for those lives. Now, we could spend hours talking about ways to proactively value human life at every stage of life. I want to offer a few thoughts based on the theme of these verses, which is specific to life in the womb. And We can value human life by protecting and caring for the life of that unborn baby. One way we do that is by teaching others, helping others to understand what we've talked about here today. That what is in the womb is a human being, a new human being with value made in the image of God. We ought to help women who are considering abortion make the choice to save the life of that child instead of ending that child's life. This is where where ministries like Christians, pregnancy centers are so helpful, but they can't do it alone. We don't just sit back and say, well, they're doing that But they need resources. They need prayers. They need volunteers. And and so we can. One of the ways that we can be involved is by being involved with those who specialize in this kind of care. I'm thankful that our church supports the Crossroads Pregnancy Center in Greenwood, and they're on the front lines of saving babies each day. There's other ministries even in our area that are doing amazing work in this. And so it's good to be involved in those things. I was over at Crossroads uh, Pregnancy Center just the other uh, a few weeks ago to drop something off, and as I was leaving, uh, the director she she was uh, she was. She was kind of seeing me out of the door. and She was getting ready to open another door that's right next there. And, and before she did, she looked at me and she whispered, pray. She said, pray, but she, she whispered it. She said, pray. And she didn't have to say anything else. Because I knew that on the other side of that door was a young lady that was getting ready to make a life and death decision. That was the ultrasound room on the other side of that door. So you better believe, oh, I got in my car praying to the Lord. We support people who specialize in that kind of care. We do our part to ensure that our government values the life of the unborn. If we think it's right for our government to enact and enforce legislation making it illegal to kill two-year-olds, then we ought to think it's right for our government to enact and enforce legislation that makes it illegal to kill the life of the unborn. From the moment of conception onward. How do we... Do those things. Well, at the very least, if you're a voting age, this issue, it's more than just an issue, but this issue should greatly influence your vote. If the candidate said he was willing to vote for two-year-olds, uh, uh, he was willing to, uh, to, to kill two-year-olds, we would be outraged. We'd just have the exact same moral outrage if that candidate says, I'm for abortion. Because we've seen there's essentially nothing different in the value between a two-year-old and an unborn baby. We don't just value the, that life in the womb by taking care and protecting that life in the womb. We, we take care of the mother and the father, right? We don't want to focus so much on the unborn baby that we forget about the mother and father. Caring for them is a way we actually care for the unborn baby. Coming alongside them and loving on them. It's one of the things I love about some of our ministries in our areas. They don't just, focus on the baby they're trying to love on and care for, not the mother and, and the father. In fact, um, one of the needs that um, that the director of Crossroads has expressed is a need for men. It's not just a ministry for women, and, and, and a need for men to come alongside these fathers who are walking through a season of an unplanned pregnancy and to love on them and to care for them and, and to help them walk through this in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And we then value that human life by taking care of that life outside of the womb as well. We don't just want to value that life in the womb, say, hey, you need to keep your child. And then when that child is born, we, we're just hands off. We don't do anything. We keep caring for that child. That child has needs after he or she is born that we can meet. We continue love and care for those parents. This involves, um, includes being involved in adoption because many of the children who are not aborted are placed for adoption because the mother is unable to care for that child. And so maybe God is calling you to adopt a child. Maybe God is calling you to help a child. Uh, uh, help someone who is in the process of adopting a child. We could go on and on with practical application. The point is this, Christians must be on the front lines of not only opposing what God opposes, but valuing actively what God values. And God values human life in the womb and human life out of the womb. There's one final way that we could respond today. And I can't close, I can't just skip over this last point. Maybe today you're guilty of not valuing human life. Maybe today. You're guilty of failing to honor our creator. In this area. But friend please know this. And this is the final statement that I want to give you. And we'll close. Because of his grace. God allows sinners to receive forgiveness from him. And enjoy fellowship with him. Because of his grace, God allows sinners to receive forgiveness from him and enjoy fellowship with him. Psalm 139 not only calls for God's wrath to be poured out on the wicked. Look at verses 19, 20, 21, 22. But then look at verses 23 and 24. It also reveals to us that God is willing to forgive and restore to fellowship with him sinners who cry out to him for rescue. As David ends the psalm, and I know we looked at this last week, but it is so worth looking at again and again. He asked God to expose the sin in him and then to lead him on the everlasting way. It is a humble confession of sin and a humble request for God's forgiveness. And God is able to respond to that humble request of, of confession, of confession and requests for forgiveness because of his great gift of grace in the person in Work of Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus to endure the wrath that we deserve for our sin, including the sin of not valuing human life, both in the womb and out of the womb. He sent Jesus to endure his punishment in our place and to promise everlasting life through Christ because he rose up from the grave. The Bible says that all of us are sinners, that we all need a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior. If you've had an abortion, then you need to confess that to God and receive his grace. If you've pressured someone into having an abortion, you need to confess that to God and receive his grace. If you've assisted in any way in the act of abortion, then you need to confess that to God and receive his grace. If you have uh, been silent in the face of abortion and not spoken out when you had opportunities, you have been silent. Then you need to confess that sin to God and receive his grace If you've rejected God's calling to value human life that He's called you to in some specific way, He said, do this or go here or say this, and you've said no. then you need to confess that to God and receive His grace. God is ready to forgive and restore you to fellowship with Him. In some way, we've all failed in this point, in this area of our lives. If you need to talk to someone today about what God is doing in your heart, please know that there are people here that love you and want to help you understand God's will for you and to help you walk in this everlasting way that God's word speaks of. I'd be glad to talk with you after the service. If you're a lady um, and need to talk with another lady, I can definitely point you in the right direction. And church, once we have received his grace, then we need to share the message of his grace with those who need to hear it and receive it. We receive Jesus and we share Jesus. And so here's just my final prayer and charge and thought for us as we close. May we shine, church. May we shine as lights in a dark world as we let the truth of what is in a mother's womb lead us to praise God for his greatness and an act of worship to protect his work of life. Would you bow with me? Father, At the end of the day, your word is meant to lead us to Jesus, to receive your grace of forgiveness, to enjoy fellowship with you that is a free gift from you that we don't deserve, to shine brightly the light of Christ in this world as we live out the truth of your word and ultimately, Lord, to praise you. Father, it's for the next few moments Help us to praise you. Lord, if there's someone here today who, who can't praise you because they don't belong to you, I pray that they would trust in Jesus for salvation. For those who need to run to you in confession, I pray that they would do that so that they can praise you more than they ever have. And Father, for all of us who've trusted in Christ, Lord, Help us to respond in praise. Lord, with the psalmist we say, I praise you. Awesome are you. Great are you, O Lord. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And Lord, in light of the good news of Jesus, we can add to that and say, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made new forever in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.